So that's Ezekiel chapter 36, starting at verse 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanlinesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove a heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanlinesses and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of a tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. That's Titus chapter 3, starting at verse 1, on page 1201. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarrelling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. A few weeks ago, a friend of mine was speaking to a room full of teenagers, and she asked the room, do you think it's wrong to get ahead in life by lying? She was expecting the whole room to put up their hand. 
But to her surprise, only a third of them did. Now, I guess some of them were probably just, you know, a bit too embarrassed to stick up their hand in a public meeting. But still, only a third thought it was wrong to cheat and lie in order to get ahead in life. It reminded me that our culture, our society, is becoming less and less Christian. And as a result, its values less and less godly. Now, please don't hear me wrong. I'm not one of those people who thinks that everything was simply better in 1950. I'm not, and it wasn't. But there are lots of ways in which our society is becoming less godly. For a long time, people of all backgrounds looked to the Bible for some kind of moral code. But now our values are increasingly post-Christian, post-truth. And that makes it harder to live a godly life in public. I met a student this summer who told me that a surprising number of his friends openly admitted to stealing things when they were at the self-service checkouts in Tesco. I was telling someone else this week who told me that most of the people in their office have absolutely no problem at all with just slightly bending the rules on what they can and can't claim back for their expenses at work. More and more in our society, that's the expectation. So where do you find the strength to stand out in a post-Christian culture? How do you live a godly life in an ungodly society? We've said throughout this series that Titus is all about the knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. And so far, we've seen what that means in church and at home. So in church, it means we need godly men who can teach the truth and exemplify it in their lives. And at home, we need ordinary Christians to live self-controlled lives transformed by grace. But what difference does the truth make outside our homes? When we're not at church, but in public, in our offices, our universities, our schools, our communities. It's a question which the Cretan church would certainly have asked. Cretans were, as we've said a few times already in this series, notoriously ungodly. Actually, their reputation was so bad that the verb to Cretanize in ancient Greek means to swindle. I mean, imagine living in a place that was so ungodly that when someone says he's just mile-ended you... (laughs) or you just got elephant and castled. What they mean is all your stuff just got nicked. That's the kind of society the Cretan Christians spent every day in. So where do they find the strength to stand out in a culture like that? How could they live a godly life in an ungodly society? It's a question which any government in the world would pay millions to know the answer to. I mean, how do you create obedient citizens? public-spirited citizens, community-minded citizens. It's also a question which has a lot of competing answers. Do we withdraw from society into a holy huddle, like the false teachers on Crete wanted to? Do we try and transform society through social justice, like many Christians today would argue? How do you live a godly life in an ungodly society? That's the question Paul sets out to address in Titus 3. And just like Titus 2, his answer splits into two parts. First, in verses 1 to 2, he gives us the pattern of a godly life. And then in verses 3 to 7, it's gospel power source. And those will be our two headings this afternoon. So firstly, the pattern of godliness 
in an ungodly society. Do look down with me again at verse 1 of our passage. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. The pattern Paul gives us in these verses can be summed up in two parts. First, we are to submit to our leaders. Verse 1, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. One of the things that Cretans were renowned for in antiquity was their rebelliousness. According to one historian, they were involved in constant broils, both public and private. And the false teachers on Crete were little better. In chapter 1, verse 10, Paul calls them insubordinate. In chapter 1, verse 16, they are disobedient, unfit for any good work. By contrast, Titus is told, remind the Cretan church to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Now, isn't it interesting that Paul says, remind them, as if this is something that he's told them before. So don't think this was a marginal theme in Paul's preaching. He thought it was something that was worth saying more than once. And the rest of the New Testament explains what it means and why it matters. 1 Timothy 2.2, it means we should pray for our king and all who live in high positions. 1 Peter 2.17, it means we should honor those in government in the way we live and speak. Romans 13.7, it means we should pay our taxes. Romans 13.2, it means we should keep the law. It's something Jesus taught, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. And it matters because of where Caesar's authority comes from. As Paul says in Romans 13.1, there is no authority except from God. And those rulers that exist have been instituted by God. Our obedience to secular authorities is really obedience to God's authority. And of course, that means that we should obey our secular leaders, even when we know we'll get away with it. I think that's probably where it makes the most difference to us. I mean, most people will keep the law when they think they'll be punished if they don't. Not many will do so when they know they won't be. But Titus 3 verse 1 means we should keep the speed limit even when we know there are no speed cameras. It means we should stick to the time limit on our sit-at-home exam, even when we know that all our friends are going to be using a little bit of extra time on the side. It means we should be honest about how much that business trip will really cost, even when we know we could get away with claiming a little bit more. For me, this makes the biggest difference when I'm on my bike. And I see the lights go red ahead of me, and I know nothing's going to happen if I just keep going. And I have to remind myself that God in his goodness has given us laws to keep us safe, to make society better. So this week I've been forcing myself to stop at every red light and trying to use that time instead to thank God that I live in a country with good laws, with good government. Maybe you can ask me how that's going next week. It's worth saying this verse does not mean we should never disobey our rulers in any circumstance. No, we obey them because we obey God's authority. So if they use their power to contradict what God says, we are allowed to quietly ignore their commands. We must obey God rather than people. But so long as our rulers' decrees are consistent with God's word, we are commanded to obey them. We are to be submissive 
to rulers and authorities. Secondly, we're also told to show courtesy to all people. Halfway through verse 1, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. When I lived in South London, we used to have a bathroom that always seemed to leak into the ceiling of our downstairs neighbor's flat. And she found this rather annoying. And however hard, hard we tried to have the leak fixed, uh, it, the water always sort of seemed to find a way through to her ceiling. And I remember one day when our, our neighbor got so angry that she actually came up to our flat and started hammering on the door to kind of have it out with us about this pesky bathroom of ours. I don't think I actually dealt with it that well at the time. I think I probably just hid in the bathroom until she left. But Paul says the way we approach those kind of situations says a lot about our gospel transformation. Note the fourfold emphasis on all here. We're to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. He's thinking of a complete pattern of life that's evident in everything we do and to everyone we interact with. And just like in chapter 2, verse 12, it includes both positive and negative. So negatively, we're to avoid quarreling, to speak evil of no one. We're not to be gossips or busybodies or to be picking fights. But positively, we're to be ready for every good work, to be gentle to show perfect courtesy to all people. In some ways, it's quite understated, isn't it? There's no comprehensive plan to reform society here. If you're looking for for a social justice agenda, I think you'll be disappointed. And yet it's still radical, still countercultural, still beautiful. One author sums it up like this. In relation to everybody, irrespective of race or religion, we're to be conciliatory, courteous, humble, and gentle. So when your neighbor is hammering on the door to complain about something that you've done, do you start shouting back at them, giving as good as you get? Or do you apologize, take the hit, even if it wasn't necessarily your fault, and make an extra effort to be friendly the next time you see them? Or when a lost tourist steps out in front of you as you cycle home, do you give them an angry lecture about the the rules of the road and cycle off sort of shaking your head in passive-aggressive contempt? Or do you apologize for nearly cycling into them? Kindly point them in the right direction. Maybe invite them to join your church during their time in London. Because that's what Paul would want us to do. To show perfect courtesy to all people. To be ready for every good work. That's how you adorn the gospel in a post-Christian era. That's how you live a godly life in an ungodly society. Of course, we can never do that on our own, can we? If everyone else in your office thinks it's fine to slightly bend the rules on their expenses, you're never going to find the strength to do the right thing just from within yourself, are you? You'd much rather have the all-expenses-paid business trip. Just like our lives at home, we need the gospel to transform us before we can actually do this in reality. And that's where our second point comes in. The power for godliness in an ungodly society. Back in chapter 2, verse 11, we noted that the word for indicates that everything which follows functions like an engine room for the transformed Christian household. 
And the same is true in verses 3 to 7 of our passage. You can see in verse 3 that Paul once again uses that key word, for. But whereas last time he launched into an explanation of grace, this time he begins by reminding us of our sin. Verse 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. All through this series, we've been talking about how ungodly Crete was. But now Paul reminds us that we were no better. In his commentary on verse 3, John Stott suggests that its description of our sinful state divides into four pairs. So first, foolish and disobedient, that is, intellectually ignorant of God's truth and morally resistant to God's will. That's what we were like. But secondly, we were also led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, not just foolish and disobedient, but utterly, completely, hopelessly so. Because our minds were led astray by Satan, the deceiver, who blinds the minds of unbelievers. And our hearts were held captive to various passions and pleasures. We were enslaved to whatever emotion happened to take our fancy. And that internal captivity led to external misery. We were thirdly passing our days in malice and envy, positively wishing others evil, malice. Negatively feeling jealous of their good, envy. And so unsurprisingly, fourthly, hostility became a regular feature of our relationships. We were hated by others and hating one another. It's a pretty devastating assessment of our condition, isn't it? Far from being obedient to our rulers, we were disobedient. Far from showing ourselves ready for every good work, we were enslaved to evil passions and pleasures. Far from being gentle and courteous to all people, we spent our days in malice and envy. It's a devastating assessment of our condition. And yet we have to admit... It's a fair one. Without Christ, we are slaves. We can't control what we do. If we were to try and and live for even a single day in the way that Paul commands us to in verses 1 and 2, we would all fail. I don't think I would even make it 10 minutes before I said something angry towards someone or thought something angry or felt jealous of someone. And that's exactly what Paul is saying. We can't control ourselves without Christ. Our sins are a sink and lurking place for every kind of filth, as one Christian writer puts it. Maybe you're here this this afternoon and you're, you're still clinging to the idea that deep down you're a good person, that you don't need rescuing, that you can do it yourself. But just think about all the things that you've thought today. Would you really want them all to be shared with your spouse, your friends, your family? I doubt it. We might not like to admit it, but Paul is right. Without Christ, we're slaves. We're no better than the society around us. But with Jesus, there is hope. The most important word in this verse is also one of the shortest 
For we ourselves were once foolish. If you're trusting in Jesus, then these things were true for you once, but not anymore. Because Paul doesn't just expose our sin, he also expounds our salvation. I think the first word of verse 4 must be one of the most precious in the whole Bible. But, but, when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Isn't it wonderful? A glorious, flowing, rich explanation of the gospel. All three members of the Trinity are here. God, the Father, our Savior in verse 4. The Holy Spirit in verse 5. Jesus Christ, our Savior in verse 6. And it takes in the entire breadth of our salvation, from our justification in the past, to our regeneration by the Spirit, to the hope of eternal life in the future. The whole sentence hangs on those three words at the beginning of verse 5. He saved us. And every other clause tells us something marvelous to unpack that salvation. So first, the time of our salvation in verse 4. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. God's goodness and his loving kindness are two of his signature moves in the Old Testament. Think of the Psalms. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love, his loving kindness endures forever. And just like God's grace in 2 verse 11, Paul says, these things have appeared in Jesus. They've been revealed. They've been made manifest. God the Father, by sending his son down to earth, has put his infinite love and kindness and goodness on display. How? Well, think about what you were like. You were foolish disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. Think about all the things you've done, the things you're most ashamed of, the things that you hope no one ever finds out you did or said or thought. God knows all of them. He sees all of them. And he decided to save you anyway. He demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. People sometimes ask me from time to time, when did you get saved? And I know what they mean. They mean, when did you become a Christian? But if you were to be a bit cheeky, if you were to answer from Titus 3, you could say, I was saved 2,000 years ago when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Because that's when he saved me. And that's when he saved you too. The time of our salvation. Second, the source of our salvation. 
He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. And we've seen throughout Titus how important good works are. In verse 1, Paul commanded us, be ready for every good work. But now he stresses equally strongly that those works contribute nothing at all to our salvation. God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. That's what makes Christianity different to every other religion in the world. Every other religion says you've got to do all these things, and then maybe God will think about saving you. Christianity says God has saved you already by his mercy so that now you can live a life of good works. Our salvation leads to works. Our works don't lead to salvation. Imagine if they did. I don't think I'd be saved. I doubt you would be. Not when we were slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy. So again, think of the things you've done. Think of the things you're most ashamed of, that you most regret. God sees them. And he still says, you get my heaven. You get my new creation. You get my son to take the penalty for your sins. Why? Because you're good? No. Because I'm merciful. Because I'm good. Because I'm kind. Not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. You know, it's so easy as a Christian to start serving God from a legalistic heart. To think, I've got to do that, or I've got to do this. But when you remember God's mercy, that he saved us even when we were dead in our sins, when we deserved nothing from him but judgment, you suddenly see it's not that I've got to do this. It's that I get to do this. Because these good works are what he saved me for. The source of our salvation is his mercy. Third, the means of our salvation. God saved us, verse 5, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. I think if I'd been writing verse 5, I'd have said something like, he saved us by sending his son to die for us. He saved us by taking our sins on the cross. But isn't it interesting how Paul gives center stage to the work of the Spirit by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Now, those two words, regeneration and renewal, they're both to do with new creation. They pick up on God's promises in the Old Testament to give his people a new heart and to purify them, to sprinkle them with clean water. And that's what Paul says has happened to us. We've received the washing of regeneration. God has wiped away all our sins, past, present, and future. And we've received the renewal of the Holy Spirit. That desire you had when you first became a Christian and for the very first time you actually wanted to do what God told you to because his spirit was living inside you. That's what Paul is talking about. And that's what God says he's done for you. It's a bit like that game. Do you know Operation? Where you have to kind of pull out all of the unhealthy things like the kind of 
can that the man has swallowed or the ice cream that's giving him brain freeze. And you have to use the little metal tweezers to, to pull them all out. And then you have to put the heart back in, the stomach back in. In the same way, God has done that kind of open heart surgery on all of us. He's taken out our evil, our enslaved, our wicked hearts. And he's put his spirit inside us instead so that we're able to live the godly lives that he calls us to. I think last week I mentioned that I I went to see the engine room of HMS Belfast. And I used it as an illustration of the, the way that the gospel empowers us to live a godly life. And in some ways, it kind of works as an illustration. In some ways, it really doesn't, because the engine rooms in HMS Belfast obviously haven't been used in decades. In reality, they're actually cold and powerless and covered in grime and asbestos. In that sense, HMS Belfast is much more like our old selves, designed for a purpose, designed to be a battleship, but actually lacking any power in the center to do it anymore. And that's what Paul says we were like, designed to live a godly life, made to be his holy people, made in his image, but lacking any power to actually be that way because of our sinful hearts. But now in Christ Jesus, God has installed a roaring great V8 engine in all of us. He's put the supercharged, nitrous-enhanced present of his spirit in our hearts. And because he's done so, we're able to live the godly lives that he calls us to live. And not just for a few special Christians over there who claim to be super spiritual, but for all of us. Verse 6, he's poured out this spirit on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Why? Or to achieve the goal of our salvation in verse 7. So that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. To be justified means to be declared innocent in God's courtroom. It means God sees you as perfect. Not because you are perfect, but because by faith you've come to share in Jesus' perfect righteousness. And because you share in Jesus' perfect righteousness, you also share in his eternal inheritance. We've become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it an amazing picture of salvation? I hope it makes your heart sing. But Paul's aim is not just to stir our hearts. It's to change our lives. His point is, we were foolish, but now God has saved us. We were enslaved to evil passions, but now God's spirit lives inside us. We were malicious, envious, loathsome. Now we belong to the hope of eternal life. And so live that way. Live out who you now are. Verse 8, be careful to devote yourselves to good works. Verses 1 and 2, be submissive to rulers, show courtesy to all people. Because we don't belong to the ungodly society around us anymore. We've been saved to live a new life in the power of the Spirit. For most of this week, I've been trying to think of a visual aid to illustrate how this works. 
And then someone reminded me that actually lots of us would have experienced the God-given visual aid of this in our baptism. So think back to the day of your baptism or to the last baptism you saw. Think about how you were lowered into the water, how the water washed over you as you were held under, how you came up again to the cheers and applauds of the congregation. Every part of that experience tells you something wonderful about your salvation. When you were lowered into the water, you were enacting the fact that that old version of you, that verse 3 version of you, is dead and buried. When you were held under the water as it washed over you, you were symbolizing your cleansing, that God has made you whiter than snow. He's sunk all your sins to the bottom of the sea. As you were brought up again, you were enacting the fact that God in Christ has raised you to a new life. You've been born again. You've been brought up to live a new life in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul says has happened to you. And because it has, you can adorn the gospel in a post-Christian culture. You can live a godly life in an ungodly society. I don't know how that will make the biggest difference for you this week. Maybe it will be at work when you're filing your expenses. Maybe it will be in your university halls or when you're at home or when you're at school and you hear friends gossiping about someone else on the street or in the neighborhood. Maybe it'll be when your neighbor is banging on your door because your bathroom is leaking through to her ceiling again. But wherever it is, it will make a difference because you're not part of this ungodly society anymore. You're a new person You've been regenerated by the Spirit of God. You've been saved to live a new life, a better life, a godly life. A few years ago, a friend of mine walked away from his job because his boss was making him lie consistently to his clients. And in the eyes of the world, that probably looked like a really stupid thing to do. I mean, it was a, it was a good job, well-paid, good status. But to him... Even though it was costly, it was easy. It wasn't a difficult decision because he had the Holy Spirit inside him, because he'd been made into a new person, because he wanted to do what God called him to do. He knew he'd been saved to live a life of good works, not of evil ones. And that's what enabled him to make godly decisions even in an ungodly place. Why don't we pray that the same would be true for us? Our gracious Father in heaven, we praise you for the wonderful, glorious salvation that you have worked for us in the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Holy Spirit. And we pray that we would be a people devoted to good works that live out this salvation even in an ungodly society. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. George, thank you so much. We've got some questions on understanding like the logic or how Paul's thinking works, and then others on the practicalities and the details. So let's just start with the reasoning and the thinking. We heard about justification. You mentioned that, justified, verse mm. 7. So salvation sounds like a status change. How then does it bring behavioral change? Mm. 
Yeah, one of the things I love about this passage is how multifaceted salvation is. So it is a status change, and justification particularly is a status change. You were guilty before God's courtroom. Now you're declared innocent. But it's not just a status change. It's also a heart change. So one of the aspects of our sin, of our, of our plight that we see in this passage is, in verse 3, you say, it says we're slaves to various passions and pleasures. So we're, we have a will that is held captive to sin. Uh, on our own, in our natural condition, without Christ, you actually cannot please God. Oh, that's Romans 8 that says that. You're enslaved. You have no capability of actually doing good works on your own. And that aspect of salvation that Paul particularly unpacks in this passage is that it's not just a status change. It's a heart change by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That language picks up on the Old Testament reading that we had from Ezekiel where God talks about taking out your heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh, a heart that actually is able to serve him, that is not able, that is not just enslaved to sin, but that is able to actually walk in good works. So salvation is not just a status change. It's also a heart change. And both those things, both the status change, knowing that I now am right with God, I don't have to earn it, And knowing that I'm a new person in Christ, that I've been regenerated and made new, both of those things then enable you to live that out in good works. Well, let's keep going. I mean, again, what you've said already will answer, I think, the next question, but you might have something to add. Um, God's grace, you've talked about the last couple of weeks. Why is it remembering God's grace? That is what God does for us. Why does that motivate us to be godly? Mm. Yeah, maybe just giving some examples would help. So I think Think about when you're doing a training for a marathon or you're in the gym or you like exercising, having the goal ahead of you. You know, I'm going to get to that finish line and it's going to be worth it when I cross, cross the finish line at the end of this marathon. Or, you know, I'm going to win that game or whatever you're training for. Having that in, in, in mind trains you to keep going, helps you to keep going with the kind of hard work of training in the meantime. And grace can be a bit like, work a bit like that. So in chapter 2, verse uh, 13, Paul reminds us of this great appearing of the glory of our Savior, Jesus, when he comes on that last day and how wonderful that's going to be. And knowing that, his grace kind of assures us that we'll be there on that day and that that inheritance will be ours. That trains us to be godly. As you think about the finish line, you're able to persevere with the hard work of godliness now. Or think about verse 14. He's redeemed us from lawlessness So I used to be in those lawless ways. I used to be in that sort of economy class, rubbish seat, you know, enslaved to my sins, to my passions and pleasures. But now Jesus has redeemed me from lawlessness. He's made it possible for me to leave those things behind and actually to live a good life, a self-controlled life, the life that actually we want to live. And knowing that, meditating on that, getting that into your mind, that trains you to live out the godly life that Paul's talking about as well. Last question like this may have something to add. Um, how is this not just be a good person passage? Yeah, it can sound a bit like that, doesn't it? Because it doesn't just mean doing nothing. Uh, so I think I, in the last talk, I used the illustration of, you know, if you hire a personal trainer, you can't just sort of hire them and then sit on the sofa all day and expect to get any stronger. You do actually have to go to the gym, but they're still training you. Uh, it's not just you doing all the work. And so in the same way, grace trains us, but we still have to get that grace into our heads. But we're not doing it as a work. 
We're not meditating on everything that God has done for us because that will earn us brownie points in heaven uh, because that's a good thing to do in and of itself. We're doing that because it will then train us to live out the lives of godliness that God calls us to. Brilliant. I'm going to answer that question. It is be a good person passage. That's not a problem. It is be a good person passage. So I don't know where that question was coming from. The question was, is this not just be a good person passage, as if that was a problem? The passage says, verse 1, be ready for every good work. Mm. Or verse 8, be careful to devote yourselves to good work. So I hope one application as we walk out of here is, I want to be a good person who does good works. Mm. And everything else we've heard will help us do that in the right but way. the key word is just. So it's not just to be a good person passage. But it's uh, be a good person. Definitely. And then Paul gives you actually something to help you do that as well. The grace of God. We've got a few questions on the details first. So maybe a bit rapid fire. People have asked details of the text, which is a great thing to do. Um, why does it say the hope of eternal life, not just eternal life in verse 7? Yeah, it's a big thing that Paul cares about in Titus. So if you look at chapter 1, verse 2, you'll see it's the hope of eternal life. And then if you see in chapter 2, verse 13, we're waiting for our blessed hope. And then, like you say, again, in this passage, that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I think maybe it's to do with that training idea. So it's not just that, great, we've got eternal life, but that makes no difference now. It's that that eternal life gives us hope now, a sort of a firm expectation of what's coming in the future. And because we know what's coming in the future, because we know, yes, I will be there on that day and God will give me his eternal kingdom, that enables me to live a godly life now. Okay, thank you. Uh, Verse five, why does Paul emphasize the Holy Spirit here instead of Jesus? Yeah, again, interesting. I wouldn't say it's instead of Jesus. So verse six, he poured out the Holy Spirit on us richly through Jesus Christ, our savior. So Jesus is there. And one of the things I love about this passage is how it balances all three members of the Trinity, both God, our Savior, in verse 4, and the Holy Spirit in verse 5, and Jesus Christ in verse 6. But it is interesting, isn't it, that the Holy Spirit is there in verse 5. And maybe that's just a slight corrective to us, that we, we naturally think it's all about Jesus, and Jesus is the one who does it all. And that's true, but the Holy Spirit is part of Jesus' work, that part of what Jesus does for us is to pour out the Holy Spirit on us so that we can have this heart change, this transformation. And that just gives us a broader view of salvation and a more biblical one as well. A couple of questions that raise huge issues. You're not going to be able to answer them, but we're going to ask you to say something about them. You mentioned social justice. The question is phrased, to what extent are good works incompatible with social justice? Oh, um... I think the thing that's interesting in the passage, so the passage I think is all about what should a Christian's attitude be to society out there? So to just to justify that, in verse 2, Paul talks about all people. And then in verse 4, the loving kindness word is actually literally love for people, the same word as in verse 2. And then in verse 8, Paul ends by saying these things are excellent and profitable for people. So it's all about how do you relate to people in general, people out there in society. And I think it's just interesting that Paul gives a relatively, it's it's radical, it's countercultural, but it's not exactly a manifesto for social reform. It's two verses and it says, be courteous to people and submit to your leaders. 
And I would just, if, if you are thinking, well, you know, the Bible wants us all to be pouring all our time and energy into transforming society, I do think it raises a question mark to say, it's interesting that Paul doesn't give that kind of a vision here. He actually thinks it's much more important just your interactions with individual people. Are you courteous? Are you obedient to the government? Uh, so that's what I would say on that. Chapter two last week, you helped us think, and uh, the week before, particularly of the different groupings in the church and how they relate to one another. Again, you're only going to be able to give us a headline, but let's just, you can say something. How does this part of chapter two affect the way we organize ministry at St. Helens? Or if you like, how should it affect how a church organizes ministry with these different groups? Yeah, I'm not sure that's the center of Paul's purpose in terms of how to organize ministry, but there are some helpful principles to learn. So in verse three, we note that older women are to teach what is good and so train the young women. So we want to be a church where that's possible and where older women know younger women and younger women get to know older women and the older women can train them and disciple them and mentor them and help them to learn the Christian faith. Or similarly, again, I think I mentioned in verse 7 that verse 7 of chapter 2 is dependent on verse 6. And so I think Paul's vision is that the younger men will be be urged to be self-controlled partly by Titus setting them an example as a younger man himself. And so, again, we want to be a church where that's encouraged and where that's possible, where slightly more mature men or older men are able to set an example to younger men that can be seen and watched. I always like it when I see slightly older men over in the students' area at the 6 p.m. because I think that's great. You know, we want to see actually different age groups and particularly those who are older and more advanced in the faith setting an example to those who are just getting going. Thank you. Last maybe detailed question or detailed question like that. So verse one in our passage today, you talked about laws that are wrong. But what if our leaders are blatantly immoral? What does it look like in this sense to be submissive to honor them? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's not simple to answer. I think I'd say two things. The first is just to repeat what I mentioned in the sermon, which is this is an unconditional obedience. So Romans 13.1 grounds our obedience to secular authorities, to earthly authorities, in God's authority. It's because God in his providence and his goodness has given us leaders and governments. And so if you have a government that's saying, making laws that say you have to do things that are not right, that actually God says are wrong, that go against the Bible, then we are allowed to sort of quietly ignore those laws, I think. We have to obey God rather than people, is what Peter says in Acts chapter 5. But if they're just immoral, but they're not actually commanding you and forcing you to do things that are unbiblical, then I would say we still have to honour them, to submit to them, to obey them. George, thank you. I think George has done brilliantly well. We've had very large, difficult questions. So, and I, I expect, though, your question, you're a bit frustrated if those are your questions, because there's only a brief answer, which is all George could do. So let's be chatting afterwards. You could ask George or me, or let's discuss over the road. Don't go. There's one more question, George. Wait there. Um, so um, let's keep discussing these things, because we've only just scratched the surface. Let's get Bibles open and think more on those questions. Um, some I haven't even got to, I'm sorry. Again, 
come and ask us. But I'm going to combine a few because I think they're in a similar vein. And this will be our last question. So, I mean, have a think. There's a few questions on how about if I'm a Christian who believes these things, but then I keep struggling with the same sins. Or another question puts it, if I'm still walking in habitual sin, have I been saved by grace? And there's a couple more like that. So thoughts for those of us who are struggling. We think we believe this, and yet we aren't seeing the change that we might want. Um, Yes, you are saved, uh, is the short answer. And the fact that you're asking that question, the fact that you're saying, I want to be set free from my sin, and I want to battle against it, shows it is in and of itself a work of the Holy Spirit in you. So be encouraged by that and keep battling. So Romans 7 says it's very, it's completely normal Christian experience to go on battling with your sin, even as a Christian, even after God's Spirit has regenerated you. But the sign that God's Spirit is at work at you is that you keep fighting. And sometimes it won't look like you're making much progress. Sometimes it will even feel like you're going backwards. But keep coming back to the grace of God. Keep clinging on to Jesus. And as you do, you might not see it at first, but over the years it will work in you and it will train you. And maybe, maybe talk to some of the older Christians around you and ask them, you know, are there sins that you really struggled with? And how have you seen God's grace training you over the years? And that will encourage you, I think, to keep going.